Okay, so we're in the book of Isaiah. We're calling it the gospel according to Isaiah because it's all about Jesus in the Old Testament. And if you are um, first time here, we read through the ESV. It's the translation we use, English Standard Version. There are Bibles in the back if you don't have one. You will need your Bibles open, as I've been saying week after week. I have a lot of scripture to cover, and I won't be able to put them all up on the screen. So our, our scripture lesson this morning is chapter 10, verses 4 through 34, is where we will be this morning. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5 going through the end of the uh, chapter to verse 34. Let me just give you a little bit of context as we jump into the text this morning. Isaiah, the prophet, the mouthpiece of God, is, is declaring God's word, God's will to God's people, mainly to southern kingdom Judah, but you'll see other nations as we continue throughout this book. He's calling the people of God into account for their uh, violation of their covenant, God's covenant that he made with them, uh, and their sin, uh, for break, the breaking of the covenant, the sin. Uh, the book began, as you know, with the king of Judah. His name is Uzziah. Uh, he's on the throne. Uh, things in the, in, the, in the southern kingdom of Judah is going externally pretty well, but yet we know that pride had entered the people and the king's heart. We saw that in the first few chapters. In chapter 6, uh, Uzziah, the beloved king, uh, dies and Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God where he sees the Lord high and lifted up. The robe uh, filled the temple above him with a seraphim. You remember with two wings they covered their eyes. Their two wings they covered their feet. Two wings they flew and they called out to one another as you know. Um, uh, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The press home, the superlative, the unmatched, unparalleled holiness of God. Holy, 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 three times uh, is the Lord. The uh, the whole earth is full of his glory. The the threshold of of the temple shakes. And Isaiah sees his sin and the holiness of God and cries out, Woe is me, I am undone. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. and And I'm in the midst and I dwell within the midst of people. With unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of glory, or the Lord of hosts. And as Isaiah is, is sensing this over, uh, this, this crushing weight of his sin, the Lord in his grace sends an angel to grab a burning coal to touch Isaiah's lips. His, his sins have been atoned for, his guilt has been taken away. That's in chapter 6. Now Isaiah is ready to go to speak to the new king since Uzziah is dead and his name is Ahaz. But we've learned over the past few weeks that Ahaz, king of Judah, was not a man who trusted God. And we, if you remember, it's very important again, we'll cover this really quickly, the importance of this, this war that's going on in the region of Israel. And if you remember, I don't have my clicker with me, but you'll be able to see Judah down on the south is where we're talking about. It's where the king Uzziah and now Ahaz is reigning. They're the southern kingdom. Israel above them is the northern kingdom. Remember the kingdom split. You have Judah and Israel now, two separate kings and two separate kingdoms. And then you have Syria right above them, another kingdom, um, another nation. Their city is Damascus. You could see that. Israel's main city is Samaria. You see that to the left. Judah's main city is Jerusalem. And then if you go northwest, nope, excuse me, northeast, you see Assyria. Assyria is growing in power and growing in authority and taking land. And Assyria um, is not only growing, but 
Syria and Israel, right there, Syria and Israel, they're afraid of Assyria. They're, they're concerned about Assyria also conquering them. So Syria and Israel decide, you know what, let's, let's join together and let's get Judah, the three of us, and we could maybe battle and, and push off Assyria. Well, Syria and Israel, they make an alliance. They go to Judah, threaten Judah. Judah's like, I'm not buying it. I'm not joining you. And Judah then goes to Assyria to make a pact with them, an alliance with the enemy. So you have Syria and Israel in alliance, Judah and Assyria in alliance. So that's, that's kind of what's going on in that region. Very important uh, that you see that. Um, as we've been seeing over the past few weeks as well, Ahaz, the king of Judah, not only joined with the enemy, but refused to listen to the prophet who spoke to him, Isaiah, and said, trust God, trust the Lord, wait on him. But he doesn't do that. And God in his grace showed faithfulness to his people. He gave, he told, he sent the prophet, he sent two signs, but God's people, Judah, the southern kingdom, refused to listen. And therefore, God not only allowed the Assyrian, A-S-S-Y-R-I-A, the Assyrian nation, to go in and conquer Syria and Israel, okay? Let me put that back up if I can. Can we go back? This thing is so hard to do. Can you put the map back up? Yeah. So God sends the Assyrian nation down to strike Syria, to strike Israel, but then continues to teach Judah a lesson by sending the Assyrian nation to march onto Jerusalem. Very important you can see that today because we're going to be talking about that. So he's, he's, he's fulfilling his promise and he is disciplining and chastising his people, Judah, to teach them to trust him just as he said they ought to. So in chapter 8, we saw God, the word of the Lord came against Judah for their failure to trust the Lord, for Ahaz and the people to trust the Lord, to stop, to to not join with the enemy Assyria, but to trust God. We saw that they were going to be disciplined. We saw that in chapter 8. In chapter 9 through chapter 10, verse 4, last week, we saw the judgment of the chastisement against Israel, the northern kingdom. So Judah in chapter uh, eight, uh, chapter yeah, chapter eight and chapter nine through chapter ten is Israel's discipline. Following me, Israel, Judah, and now today we're going to see that God is going to bring judgment upon the Assyrian nation. Okay, got it? Chastise Judah, chastise Israel, bringing destruction now upon the Assyrian nation. That's where we find ourselves this morning, okay? Three headings. The providence of God, the promise of God, and the power of God. Verses 5 through 19, which is the longest passage, part of the passage, 20 through 27, 28 through 34. The providence, the promise, and the power of God. So I'm going to read the word as we go through each one of these sections. Again, keep your Bibles open. I don't have all the verses up there. So chapter 10, verse 5 is where we will start, and we now hear the word, the inspired, infallible, authoritative word of God. Chapter 10 of Isaiah, verse 5 through verse 19. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. 
Against the godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Verse 9, is not Kalno and well, is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has stretched to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work, verse 12, on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I will bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken. So I have gathered all the earth and there was none that moved the wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Verse 15, shall the ax boast over him who hews it with it or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it or is as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore, The Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will kindle. Like the burning of a fire, the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his faithful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away, The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that even a child can write them down. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. As you can see, we need to put our thinking caps on today. After the prophet Isaiah judges, announces judgment and discipline against Israel, as I said earlier in chapter 10, he turns his attention now to Assyria. In verses 5 and 6, God announces what he is doing. He was going to use the Assyrian nation to discipline his kids. Look, notice with me verse 5, the rod of my anger. The staff of their hands is my fury. He's talking about the Assyrian nation. Verse 6, against a godless nation, that's actually Israel. He says, I send him, Assyria, against the people of my wrath, I command him. So the who in this text doing the work of chastising God's people who's sending this nation is really clear. The purpose of God was to send the Assyrian nation to do his bidding. But if you notice the ch- verse 5, excuse me, verse 5, yes, begins as verse 10, chapter 1 begins with the word woe. So something's going on here, right? Woe, a denouncement of sin, a lament of sin, a warning of impending doom because of their sin. Something's going on, but yet God is using the Assyrian nation. 
In verses 7 through 11, what we see here is Isaiah is revealing to us what the Assyrians think about what God's going to do. What the Assyrians uh, think about the chastising of God's people. What, what, what was in their heart. What was their perspective on what was going on. If you see in verse 7 through 11. Their thought, their heart, their perspective was they were going to destroy. Look at verse 7. To cut off nations. It was the Assyrians' heart and perspective that they had their proud great commanders, verse 8. They they were prideful, verses 9 and 10, in the destruction of other nations. Kalno, Karmic, Carchemish. Verse 11, shall I, again the Assyrian nation, what their thoughts, what their heart, what their perspective was, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? So God speaks in 5 through 6, 5 and 6 of what he's doing in 7 through 9, 7 through 11 is the, 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 the thoughts and the perspective and the heart of the king of Assyria. He, he is claiming sovereignty over the world, putting himself in God's place. It becomes evident from verses 5 and 6 compared to verses 7 through 11, that their idea, their perspective, their hearts, what they were doing was very different than than the perspective of what God was doing. They're not on the same page. Their perspective is is very different. Unfortunately for them, God will have the final say. Skip verse 12 just for a moment and look at more of the heart of the king of Assyria, his prideful heart. He is speaking in verse 13. By the strength of my hand, Assyria king, I have done it. And by my wisdom, I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. And what you see is this this prideful sin showing up, taking the praise of, of all what he does, his abilities, his accomplishments. Not, not the one who gives them the ability. He's not the one who accomplishes things for him, the gift giver, but he takes it upon himself. Verse 14, my hand has found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, I have gathered all the earth and there was none that moved the wing or even opened his mouth for a chirp. In other words, what he's saying is, I went to this nest as at a metaphor and I snatched it. Nobody was looking, nobody was watching. I just took what I wanted. Again, another boast, another uh, a claim of authority and sovereignty over what I do, the Assyrian nation is saying. It's by my strength, my wisdom, my might. Praising himself and recounting all of his accomplishments. Does that remind you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, does that remind you of any other Old Testament king? In Daniel chapter 4, we meet a king. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. He had dreams. and called Daniel, the Hebrew boy, to interpret the dreams. And on his second dream, he, would, he, he, he had a dream. And the second dream that Daniel interpreted, Daniel tried to tell him about his pride. About Nebuchadnezzar's pride. His boastful, his boastful attitude of his mighty kingdom. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't listen, didn't heed the warning. 
And because of his pride, the king was coming down. In fact, if you read in Daniel chapter 4, it was Nebuchadnezzar walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. At that point, it was the world power. And he's walking on the roof, chapter 4, verse 30, and it says this. He, speaking to himself, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by, by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? The Bible says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven said, O king of Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has been spoken, just what Daniel told you, the kingdom has departed from you. Ran out eating grass, if you know the story, it's quite funny. I guess unless you're Nebuchadnezzar, it's not funny, but for us it's funny. Spiritual pride looks at life and says, look what I've done. My ways, my strength, my glory. Spiritual pride sings that famous Frank Sinatra song. I used to love that song until I got saved. Did it my way. It's like, well, you tell that to Jesus when you see him. Pride looks at my accomplishments with a sense of, 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 of self-entitlement, um, not stewardship. That's the difference. I deserve all I have. I'm owed this. I, I'm the author of life. Keller, Tim Keller calls it cosmic plagiarisms. You know, trying to steal the glory, steal the thunder, steal, the, steal the, uh, 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 the praise of my own life rather than give the praise to the one who created life and gives life, right? When we claim... When you and I claim to, to be the creator and author of life, what we've done is we've committed what Keller calls cosmic plagiarism. It's by my ability and by what I do. That is what the king of Assyria was doing. There's a difference between self-exalting pride and being proud. You know what I mean? Just this week, we had a conference um, the LCN conference, and our, and our band, Pastor Ricky and our band went up to, 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 to lead the worship, the two sets, so actually they closed with a song too, and you know, I think it was right for me to, to see the band play and, and feel, feel proud, and just, they, they, all the band members, they just did a great job, they worked through some difficulties at the beginning, and they worshiped the Lord and led the people, I think it was okay, it's not okay, for me to look out and say, look what I did. I, I, I'm the lead guy, and, and this is all because of my hard work. God does not need Pastor Lou. Not for a second. And believe me, I got pride issues too, like the rest of us, so I'm not boasting. I'm just saying. I need to make sure that doesn't happen. So there's a difference. It's a recognition that I, it's, it's being a good steward of what God has given me, a responsibility, and really a... a, a, a a time of just recognizing that he's in control and being okay with that. And some people are not. He's not. This, this, this Assyrian king says, look what I have done. And in verse 15, God asks this rhetorical question, exposing the lie of king, uh, all that the king was saying in verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews it? And what he's saying is, and you read the rest of that verse, that the king is compared to an axe, a saw, and a rod, literally, look at verse 5, it, it, God uses, is the one using the axe and the rod. And here God is using it as a rhetorical question. What he's saying is, look, all those tools that 
I use, your hand was using because I commanded it and I am using you to accomplish my purposes. If you think you could do something and not lift a finger, all those things don't work by themselves. You just watch them lay on the floor and nothing will happen. So you, the Assyrians, the rod in verse 5, chapter 10, verse 5, have nothing to brag about unless God is the one. God allows them to accomplish the purposes of his sovereignty. God is behind it. He's the ruler of all nations. Even the wicked ones. Isaiah will tell us in chapter 40 that God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. God moves his finger and moves the earth, the world. The nations will mobilize. It's God that's doing the work. Go back to verse 12 again. We see that very clearly. When the Lord has finished, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, when he's done doing what he's called the Assyrian army to do, disciplining his people, then look what it says. He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So go ahead and boast, Assyria. Go ahead and boast, king of Assyria. God's purpose, God's perspective, God's punishment will have the final say. That's what he's saying. And therefore, verse 16, because God's purposes will be accomplished, the Lord God of hosts, the sovereign one, the omnipotent one who's over all creation, will send wasting sickness and burning fire. You see that? Verse 16 and 17, two metaphors. One describes an inward uh, impact of wasting away, uh, strength being depleted. And then there's one outwardly where this fire is just consuming widespread. Verse 17 pictures God himself being the flame, his holy one of flame. So as we look at chapter 10, verses 5 through 19, this is what we see. Take a step back. This is what we see. We see that God is disciplining and chastising in love his children by allowing the enemy, their enemy, Assyria, to march into the city, down Syria, Israel, into Judah. Chapter 10, verse 6 says, to spoil and to seize it, which, by the way, is Isaiah's name, son's name, back in chapter 8. God is fulfilling what he, what he said he was going to do. That's what Maha Shalahabaz means, uh, spoil and, and seize plunder. God is allowing that to happen. Then, after God sends the Assyrian nation into Syria, into Israel, into Judah, when it's time, he says, that's it. And then he turns and judges the Assyrian nation for doing it. Anybody see maybe a problem with that? God uses Assyria and then judges them for it. It's exactly what happened. Well, here at King Chapel, we, have, we talk a lot about, especially when we're in Old Testament narratives, about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. If you've been here any amount of time, you've heard me say that before. And you see the scriptures teach that. God's sovereignty, that God is sovereign, means that in his omnipotent all power, it was omnipotent power. He has the right and the authority and the power to govern all and everything in the entire universe for his own wise, holy, 
purposes and even the brokenness and sinfulness of man. That's his sovereignty. Isaiah will say in chapter 46, as God will say through Isaiah, I am the Lord, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. If you know the story of Genesis, you know the story of Joseph. We went through Genesis a few years back. At the end of Genesis, Joseph is talking to his brothers, his mean, vindictive brothers, retelling this story. He was beat up, dropped in a pit, sold into slavery, off to Egypt. Then a famine hits. And Joseph looks to his evil brothers and says, you know what? God sent me. I know y'all threw me in a pit, and I went to Egypt on a, on a, on a, 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 a caravan. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth to keep alive because they were looking at starvation and dying. Food was in Egypt. So he's like, Joseph says to his brother, God sent me to keep you alive. So it was not you who sent me here, Joseph says, but God. And what we see is Joseph recognized that the brokenness and sinful action of his brothers came under the great and awesome and final eternal decree of God. That, that in no way implicates God as the one doing evil. God is holy. God is perfect. There is no darkness or evil in God in any degree at all. But he does permit sinful men and women to perform it and then overrules it for his own wise and holy ends. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says the same decree of God predestined decree of God, which ordains the moral law that prohibits and punishes sin also permits its occurrence. But it limits it and determines the precise channel to which it shall be confined and the precise end to which it shall be directed and overrules its consequences for good, end quote. Joseph, you know the story at the end of chapter 50 of Genesis makes it clear. He says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me. That was the motive. That's why you did what you did to me. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That was his motive. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So, so we have to have this two-handed approach, two truths to grasp and to understand. One, God is sovereign. And that includes being sovereign over evil. I've mentioned this before. It just makes sense. If God was not sovereign over evil, he would have no one to work with because we're all evil. He would be like all alone. Nothing to do, right? So God is sovereign even over evil. Second, man is responsible Judas, in a free and voluntary action, turned over Jesus to be crucified, and yet he's responsible, and yet it's part of God's eternal purpose and plan. Now, I want to read to you another quote. It's kind of long. I don't like to do long quotes, but when it comes to the Prince of Preachers, it's worth it. His name is Charles Spurgeon. He says this, 
that God predestines and yet that man is responsible are two facts that a few can only clearly see, that kids clearly see. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they're not. The fault is our own weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. If he says, I find taught in the Bible that everything is foreordained, this is true. If I find in Scripture that man is responsible for his actions, that also is true. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine that these two truths can never contradict each other. It's my, that contradict each other. That it's, can, can ever contradict each other, right? So it's my folly that leads me to imagine that these truths can ever contradict each other. I don't believe they can. He said, I don't believe that they can ever be welded into one upon this earthly anvil, but certainly shall be one in eternity. Someone asked Spurgeon one day, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty over the world and man's responsibility? How, how do you reconcile those truths? He says, I, would, I, I wouldn't. He said, I, I, I never reconcile friends. In the Bible, divine sovereignty, human responsibilities are not enemies. They're not even uneasy neighbors. They're not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends and they work together, end quote. And you say, well, pastor, how does God's sovereignty work with man's responsibility? How exactly does that happen? How does he combine his sovereign will and his providential control over willing and significant choices? And I would tell you, I'm not God, I don't know. But by faith, I believe what the word of God tells me. Grudem says, rather than deny one aspect or the other, we should accept both in attempts to be faithful to the teaching of Scripture, end quote. All of this is done through God's working, God's providence. God's providence is how God exercises his sovereignty. As he, as he acts, as he works, as he preserves and provides and manages working all things together for his plans and purposes, intended for our good and his glory. That's, that's what providence means. And we see clearly in Isaiah, he understood that, that everything and all things, even evil men and evil kings, are in the sovereign hand of God. I mean, it's hard to conceive. The wicked Assyrians are on mission to do God's bidding unwittingly, but they're doing it. That's not to say God manipulates people in a cynical way. No, it is God is present in and through the process of his story, history, bringing out that which will serve his purposes. Yet there's accountability. Now, now Assyria is not without sin. We see that. They had a, they had a prideful motivation. They, they, were, they were motivated by destruction and pride and destroying the Israel, the God of Israel. Remember, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. And Assyria's perspective was, I will do whatever I want. They thought they were sovereign, carrying out their sovereign plan. And God allowed them, but (laughs) they were carrying out his plans. Their motive was not to bring God glory. God's motive was to bring himself glory. God is doing the work. Do you this morning, you can talk about this in community groups as well. Do you this morning have that kind of understanding of who God is? 
Do you this morning see and understand the sovereignty and the supremacy and the providence of God in all the world? I mean, does it even matter to you this morning? Let me just give you a couple of things. Again, you could talk about it in community group as you gather. What does it matter that God is supreme, sovereign, and his providence and his purposes will come to pass always without any, any possibility of it not happening? Why does that matter? Let me give you a couple things to think through. We move to the second point, and we'll move faster through the rest of the, of the points. But God's sovereignty and God's providence means that God is a God of purpose, right? His providence and sovereignty is, shows us that God is a God of purpose, that God is always working for our good and his glory, always. The text is clear. Number two, God's providence and sovereignty means that there's no need to fear or to worry. Jesus calls it a sin. We can trust what the Bible claims about God's character and it's backed up by his ability. Not only does God love us, he has the ability to care for us. Third, God's providence and sovereignty means there's no plan B. There can't be. He's sovereign over the world. So we need to make decisions in our life, and I think we don't need to freak out about it. I think we need to pray. We need to seek the will of God. We need to get input by our community, and it's okay to make the decision pressing forward, trusting God in that decision because we know that God's sovereignty and his providence, if we're going astray or we have gone astray, he will bring us back. He can bring us back. He'll guide us if we need to the back to the right course. I mean, we just haphazardly, I'm not saying that, but we can trust him. Number four, God's providence and sovereignty impacts our sense of identity. Think about this for a minute. If God is all-powerful and his providence and his promises always will be fulfilled, and we know that God's word tells us that he loves us and that we're secure in his hand, you could trust it. Why? Because he's sovereign and he is working all things out according to his purposes. Your identity not in the world, but in him. And lastly, the sovereignty of God is a tremendous comfort, should be a comfort to us. There's never been an occasion ever, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's election, there's never been an occasion where God's like, ah, I didn't see that coming. Ah, I really dropped the ball on this one. Now, what am I going to do? God's providence and his sovereignty is not without purpose. It's got a purpose. It shows us there's no need to fear or worry. There's no plan B. There's a sense of a security in our identity. We belong to him. His providence and sovereignty will keep us. And it should comfort us. He knows what he's doing. And lastly, I should say, it means that we can, he keeps his promises. The sovereignty of God. The providence and sovereignty means he keeps his promises. Verses 20 through 27. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will, be no, will no more lean on him who struck them, Assyria, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return. The remnant of Jacob to the mighty God will return. Notice, notice the assurance there. For though your people, Israel, be as the sand of the sea, talking about Genesis, Abraham's promise, only though a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end 
a decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, verse 24, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Syrians when they strike with you with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. Don't fear. Verse 25, for in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. We talked about that. And the Lord, verse 26, of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian, the rock of Oreb, and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck. The yoke will be broken because of the fat. Again, God blessing, add a blessing to the reading of his word. So this idea of remnant, we've seen it over and over. Actually, chapter 1, verse 9, talks about this, uh, this remnant, this, this, this salvation, this people that God will have for himself. Mentioned 16 times in the book of Isaiah, at least. In these verses, the prophecy uh, abruptly drops from the discussion of of, 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 of the destruction of Assyria in order to show that God still has a plan and a promise to his people. I love this about the book of Isaiah. In the midst of brokenness and sin and judgment, light shines, grace. The salvation prophecy predicts a day when the Israelites will trust God, They won't trust the Assyrian king anymore. They're not relying on him, the Assyrian king, to save them. They're going to trust the Lord. And notice that God's promise is in the midst of his discipline. It doesn't change. In fact, he's speaking while he is disciplining his children. We see grace again break through. The promises of God have not failed, even though the Assyrian nation in all its power is marching into Judah. But Assyria will be brought to an end. And the people of God will one day turn and lean for support. Look at verse 20. The Holy One of Israel. They will lean on him. Now, it's interesting. We saw already Isaiah's son, Mahashalabaz, which means, as you know, spoil, the spoil uh, come true. And now here we see a remnant will return. That's his other son. Isaiah's other son. We see God keeping his promise. Share Jashub. In chapter 7, verse 3, a remnant will return. And now Isaiah is saying a remnant will, in, will indeed return, a remnant of Jacob, the, the true Israel, the elect of God, the one who lean not upon Assyria, the ones who are disciplining them, but lean on the mighty God, the one who sits on the throne of David, they will trust. And I don't think, you know, when he talks about the return, I don't think it's simply a returning to the land, or I do think... Uh, it, has, it has to do with that as well. But I think what's happening here is from the language is there's a returning not just to the land, there's a returning spiritually to God. A remnant will return. That, that's repentance language. One day, yes, in the future, there'll be a remnant. Those who return to the mighty God, see that in the text. That comes from chapter 9, verse 6, speaking of the Messiah. The government will rest upon his shoulder. There'll be a remnant that God will keep in eternity for himself. Those who who dare live by faith in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But here we see also that there are some who are motivated, who recognize that, you know what? They're not God. 
And you know what? They need help. And you know what? They got to stop fighting these battles by manipulating other kings and, and, and working with this nation and working in this day. They need to trust the Lord to lean on him. Do you see that? Sometimes we get into these fights and, and what we do is we, we, we battle. Um, we, we get into these hard times. We get into these difficulties. We get into these battles. And what we do is we put on our own armor, right? We, we want to fight battles the way we want. We want to use our wisdom, our strength. But, but Ephesians tells us that we are, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up your own armor? No, it says take up the armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Having done all that, stand firm in God. And I think we see here is there, there was, there's a remnant of people that will come back. They'll be courageously trusting in him, recognizing that he's going to fight the battle. We need to trust him. And unfortunately, verses 22 through 23 says only a small portion will return. And it's interesting, if you look at with me in verse 22, it kind of, it kind of it's hard to, you know, why would, why would God say this to us through, through, through Isaiah for though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will return. Why would he say that? Is he just reminding them of the promise that was given to Abraham? Or could it be, which I think it is, I think the people of Israel were saying, look, nothing's going to happen to us. God made a promise. We could just go and do whatever we want. Romans 6.1. Should we sin that grace may abound? And God's like, No. Actually, no, you're going to be disciplined. You can't just stand upon a promise and do whatever you want. Right? So the promises of God and the discipline of God are meant for us to persevere in faith, not to turn away from God, but to turn to God. They were turning away from God, all the while standing on the promise of God. There's some false hope there. If you're here this morning, like I'm standing on his promise and go and living any old way you want, you're kidding yourself. We stand on the promises of God and we press on in the promise of God, even in his discipline, and we're moving forward in faith. That's what the promises are for, to grow in our faith. That's what discipline is for, to grow in our faith, not to, not to go do whatever we want. The Holy One will keep his promises, but he will do so in a way that is true to his holiness. Ortland, uh, in his commentary, says this, when he, God, rips from your arms some false trust, that has struck you a thousand times, and a thousand times you've gone back to it in a servant compliance, and you're ready to go back again when God tears it away. Do you see what he's doing? His grace is setting you apart as one of his remnant dear to his heart, end quote. God's going to have, now, now, God's going to keep his remnant. Verses 20 through 23 speaks about the return of the remnant. Now look down at verse 24 through 27 speaks about the removal of fear. God's comforting his people. His remnant with the reality and details of a serious defeat. He tells them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God will deal with them. God's anger against his people will subside. You see that? Verse 25. And his wrath will then turn into the destruction of Assyria. For in the very little while, my fury will come to an end against you, and my anger will be directed to their destruction. Do you see that? 
On that day, God will deal with Assyria. The yoke of the Assyrian tyranny will fall off their necks. That's what he promises. And he says, listen, remember what I did to the Midians? Verse 26, I took care of you. I delivered you. Remember what I did in Egypt, in the Exodus? I took care of you. Listen, remember what I say I will do. I will deliver you. Notice what it doesn't say. Work real hard. Fight the best battle you can. Do all you can do to keep them from coming, the Syrian army, to come into Jerusalem, and then I'll help you. That's not what it says. God supernaturally and by grace will step in and spare his remnant. That's what that means. Nothing earned. Yoke of bondage will be broken. Israel will survive as they have done in the past. Now, let's look at that for a second. All of us in this room are either facing trials going to be going into a trial or just came out of a trial. It just works that way, right? The difficulty. Sometimes we have trials and difficulties and hardships in our life that just has to do with in a broken, fallen, jacked up world, sinful, rebellious world we live in. It's just part of living here. Sometimes, if we're honest, we are lovingly being corrected by our Heavenly Father. Remember Hebrews tells us, for the Lord disciplined those he loves, chastises his sons and daughters, We can go through hard times. We can go through difficult times and and hardship as Israel is and yet still rejoice in them if we see it from God's providence, from God's perspective, by God's power working in us. He loves us and his providence is always for us and not against us. And therefore, we can have joy in the midst of hardship. He's a purposeful God. First Peter, Peter writing to a persecuted church. He says, in this you rejoice. He's talking about the security of your salvation. That's the context. In this you rejoice, being secure in God's salvation. Though now for a little while, it's necessary, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Various trials meaning the world, the devil, the outside, but also difficulties we face because of things we've done. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, is tested by fire and to be found, to be revealed as it's being burned and tested to the result in the praise and the glory and honor of the coming of Jesus Christ. Purifying faith, ultimate purpose, praising and glorifying God. Peter will go on to write, the God of all grace called you to his eternal glory. And after you suffered for a little while, we'll restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Do you catch that? The providence and the promises of God that you will suffer, but yet you will be redeemed, you will be stand firm, you will be steadfast. It's the awakening of grace. It releases the power as we suffer, as we are disciplined, the power of the gospel. God's promise to work in his providence, listen now, God's promises to work in his providence and his sovereignty to keep us to the end. God will do whatever it takes to teach us, to guide us, to preserve us, to correct us. And in the end, our enemies will be destroyed, and yet we, by the providence of God and the promise of God, will be brought home. Why? Because of the power of God. Number three. Verse 28. 
He's got some great words in it. Just work with me. He has come to Ai. He has passed through Magron at Michmash. I've been practicing all day. Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass at Geba. They lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughters of Galam. Give attention, O La Yusha, and poor Anna Thoth. Madmanah is in flight. The inhabitants of Gibbon flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord of hosts, the Lord God of hosts, will lop the bow with terrifying power. The great height will be hewed down, and the lofty will brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon, which is another name for Assyria, will fall by the majestic one. I'm not reading that again. I'll make, just make it really easy for you. What, what Isaiah is saying is he is showing, the, if you look at all those names, if you look on a map, you'll see the Assyrian nation marching each one of those cities further east, further west, than south. So what Isaiah is doing is the army is coming from Assyria and it's marching through these, all these cities till it gets to verse 32, they're on the cusp of Jerusalem. That's what, that, that's what, that's what all those names mean, okay? They're, they're, they're right before the very walls of Jerusalem as a forest is laid low by an axe. For suddenly, uh, uh, verse 33, God intervenes. He destroys magnificent trees, humbling the lofty and cutting down the forest. Back in verse 15, Assyria is the axe in God's hand. Now the Assyrians are themselves forests that God will demolish. And this final prophetic announcement, I believe, was meant to teach Israel again to trust the Lord not to fear Assyria. They're coming. I'm telling you they're coming, but they're going to come this far and no further because I, the Lord, have said so. Trust my word. Rest in me. Don't get caught up in the pride of, of self-exaltation as the Assyrians doing. Don't get caught up in looking, oh, look how wonderful I am, all that I have done. No, trust in the Lord. And people who claim this, this kind of uh, authority or this kind of control are setting themselves up to lose control. And many people come to faith that way, right? We, we want to control our lives. We want to do what we want to do with, a, with, a, with a, a king of our own castle. We are the master of our own destiny. And then all of a sudden, everything comes crumbling down. We have no place else to look but up. That's what happened to me. Unfortunately for Assyria, they're not going to look up. They're going to look in. And they're going to be devastated. And the people who don't recognize the power of God will be devastated and destroyed. Those who think they can plan the future to their advance will soon learn, to their advantage, will soon learn that, guess what? God supersedes your plans and purposes. And we feel afraid or we feel alone. Fear God. Trust Him. Run to Him. Reverence Him. God will bring your oppressors to an end. Remember, here's another thing. I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. I don't remember. Remember the work of God in your life in the past. Keep a journal. The faithfulness of God. Remember what, the work that God is doing. 
the past acts of salvation and deliverance that God has done in your life. Remember those things. He's the only true source of hope. Fear him. Have reverence and awe of him. Now, this passage that we're seeing points clearly to the the providence of God, that God is working in his sovereignty all things together, that God's providence is also fulfilling his promise, that because of his providence, he fulfills every promise, and because he is providence and his promise, he has the power and the authority to what? Do all that he says he will do. Do you know that is the gospel? Do you know that the providence, the promise, and the power of God is the is what the gospel is all about? As we look at the most heinous crime ever committed against the only one who is perfect, the most monstrous injustice in all of human history in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ is the outworking of God as he uses evil to accomplish his glorious purposes. Peter stood up in Acts chapter 2, preaching a message on the day of Pentecost. He said, men of Israel, hear this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with mighty works, mighty wonders, mighty signs that God did through him in your midst. You saw it, you witnessed it. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, listen, delivered up, crucified on a Roman cross, according to the what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Of God. Who's responsible? Jesus was delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God who was orchestrating it in his sovereignty, in his providential outworking. He ordained the cross. Now look at it again. But you, he says, crucified him. Lawless men. We'll see in a minute. You yourselves know. Definite plan. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. At the exact time, the lawless men who are held responsible for their actions, nailing Jesus to the cross as he's hanging on Calvary, it's God's decree and his definite, final, and predetermined plan. God did not merely look through the whole of time and see what was going to happen and then declare that that crucifixion was going to save sinners. That is not what happened. God planned the bloody cross in order to accomplish his mission of saving sinners like you and me. And behind the dark veil of the murder of Jesus Christ, the providence of God was at work. The divine purpose was orchestrated by his divine providence as he directs the affairs of all of human history. Isaiah 53, all the sheep have turned away, every one to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, Isaiah says. The crucifixion, the cross of Jesus, was simultaneously an act of lawless murder and divine salvation. Through the providence of God, which at times mysterious, I get it, mysterious, I get it, God was working out the evil intentions of man through his own intention to keep his promise of a redeemer and sends his son to the cross where the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. This promise goes back to Genesis 3.15. All throughout the Bible, God makes a promise that he will redeem and rescues. And on the cross, we see that promise. Look lastly at Acts chapter 4. 
The kings of the earth, as the apostles talking, set themselves and the rulers against, were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed, that's the Messiah. For truly in this city, gathered together against your holy servant is a prayer by the apostles, your holy servant Jesus, you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, that's everybody, to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. <laughs> we know that all, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. Really? Yes. Tortured and abandoned, Jesus experienced ultimate, ultimate betrayal and sacrifice, but yet his promises are fulfilled. The promise of God, the providence of God, and now the power of God in the gospel. Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and then to the Greek. Listen, family. By God's willingness, by the Lord Jesus' willingness to save we, us, he worked out his providence, he made faithful to his promise, and by his power, we are saved. Do you know that kind of God? Ben, come on up. Do you know that kind of God? Let me, let, just give me one more second as they came up. Do you know that kind of God? Do, do you know that God did so in his providence, keeping his promise through his omnipotent power, rescued you, saved you, fulfilled his promise from Genesis 3.15 on Calvary's hill? Through all the promises throughout Scripture, do you know that? With a heart of love, Jesus gave himself. He was condemned so we could be forgiven. He was forsaken so we can be accepted. Family, look at the cross. Look at the work of the gospel. Where God's sovereign plan, God's good providence, God's power and omnipotent power reconciled us. If you see that this morning, not only in the text of Scripture we're reading, but in the gospel, guess what? You'll trust him. You'll trust him. You'll have hope in him. You'll rest in him. You'll rejoice in him. You'll be secure in him. Are you? I hope you are this morning. I hope you are. I hope you've trusted Christ and recognize the awesomeness of who God is and what God has done for your salvation out of love for you. Let us pray. There is... It's just hard to completely grasp all that you have done in the universe to accomplish your good purposes and therefore our salvation and your glory. So God, thank you. You are seated on the throne. You have all authority and you have rescued and redeemed your people. Lord, as we see and experience the day-to-day things and the circumstances in our life, Lord, help us to remember this truth so that we would be your people who would proclaim the great salvation that you have provided and that you are sovereign over the world and used your, and has provided for us a way of escape. Help us, Lord, to worship you, the one true God, as we continue to worship in song. Amen.